Thanks so much, Caleb. Hey, good morning, everybody. It is great to see you today as we talk about the endurance of faith. We come to a very uh, encouraging but also a very challenging part of the book of Hebrews today. And so if you would, please grab your Bible and join me at Hebrews 10, verse 19. Find your sermon notes and pull them out of your bulletin or download those off uh, your church app. We've uh, upgraded and updated the church app this week, so you can actually fill in the blanks right on the electronic version of your notes. You can even email them to yourself when you're done if you care to do that. So digging into the endurance of faith today. Again and again, the writer of Hebrews reminds us of the superiority of Jesus Christ. Clearly, that's one of the major themes in Hebrews, the superiority of Christ, that no human priest in and of himself could open the way to heaven for sinners. No human priest could do that. No other person could qualify as our bridge between God and man. Only Christ. And that's been stated and restated in Hebrews several times now. But now the emphasis is going to shift. It shifts from Christ's superiority to our response to that truth. And here the writer sort of looks into our eyes, as it were, in strong and somber terms and says, you know, Jesus is superior, so now what? How are you going to respond to that? What will you do with this truth? The author introduces this new section that begins at Hebrews 10, 19 with the little word, therefore. Okay, and if you took my suggestion and you're marking your Bibles, I'd suggest you underline or circle the word therefore and write application or APP beside it. Because from here on in this letter, he tells us the so what of all that he's been building to this point. He says this is our responsibility with these truths. And a simple reading of this section is enough to convince us God is not playing games. He means business. This very serious warning convinces us of that. It's a very, very strong warning about a very serious danger. You ready for that today, this warning passage? Okay, we need to get ready because we need to line up our lives or we are in trouble. But before we go any further, I want to review with you some of the important things we've seen about those that this letter is written to because they help us understand the context. The book was written to Jews who had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were Hebrews by birth, and they were Christians by faith. And in a sentence, that's sort of the story of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews by birth and Christians by faith. To be Hebrews by birth meant that they had entered into the world of Old Testament ritual. They knew and obeyed the law of Moses. They kept all the dietary laws that it had. They sang the Psalms of Moses. They observed the feast days and they tithed on their income. They read the prophets and they kept the Sabbath day holy. From first to last, they were Jews. That was their heritage. And to be Christians by faith meant that they had heard and received the gospel message. They were followers of Jesus. They believed that he was the promised Messiah and that they had trusted their life to him for salvation. They believe now that all of the Old Testament pointed to him, in fact, toward his coming as Messiah. And having taken that step of faith, they identified themselves 
with the fledgling congregation of Christians in their city. That was not an easy move for them to take. Their Jewish friends accused them of treason against Moses. Their families, I'm sure, urged them to come back to the synagogue. Their faith was on the firing line every single day. Compromise was easy. Convictions, hard to hold. They were tempted to give up their open identification with with Christ and with other Christians and to lapse back into Judaism. Some of them had already done that. Others were considering doing that. Because for these Jewish believers in Jesus, the, the spiritual warfare was a daily reality. And many of them had become casualties to it. All right, that's the context. Let's jump into the text now. And the structure of our text today is in three parts. First, there's an encouragement to endure, to endure in the faith. Then there's this very strong warning. And finally, there's this another encouragement toward perseverance. Let's begin with the first part, which is made up of three exhortations to endurance. Three exhortations to endurance. And before the exhortations begin, the author actually begins with two important facts, each of them marked by the word since. So look for the word since. Let's start with the facts, and here's the first one that we can count on, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. I'm going to stop there and consider the first fact marked by the word since. We have confidence to enter by the blood of Jesus. We're able to come before God before his very throne with boldness because of the perfect sacrifice Jesus made for us. You know, if a person tries to come into God's presence based on his own character, his own good deeds, his own religiosity, he will find no access at all. The blood of Jesus, however, counts for everything. And the person who trusts in his atoning sacrifice can come with complete confidence. We can expect mercy and grace rather than justice. Because Jesus, with his shed blood, satisfied God's justice on our behalf. And that's why we have confidence to enter by the blood of Jesus. Here's the second fact that we can count on today. It's in verse 21. He says, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. So fact number two, we have a great priest over the house of God. Jesus not only provides the way to God, but he takes us with him. That phrase, house of God, here refers to God's people in general. Jesus is our great high priest. He's not only our sacrifice, but he's the one who goes for us into the presence of God to make the way for us. Based on those two facts, the Holy Spirit is now going to extend three exhortations or commands. So notice the writer marks these commands with the words, let us. Let's look at those commands in verses 22 to 25. The first one is this. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near is how I would summarize that. There would be a great natural anxiety about entering into the presence of God, but the author asserts that in Christ we now have confidence or boldness to do so. 
We have full assurance to enter into the very presence of God. And the point is, we can do that because of Christ. We can draw near through him. The second exhortation is to hold fast. Let us hold fast, he says in verse 23. And verse 23 puts it like this. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. That word confession, as it's used in Hebrews, refers to their public acknowledgement of Christ when they became followers of him. They were publicly acknowledged that through their baptism. So he's not asking them to make another confession through baptism, but to remain strong in that public confession, to not waver in their faith, not hesitate to identify with Jesus as one of his followers, but to hold fast. The third and the final command is let us stir up. So let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us stir up. And this involves meeting together with other believers, being committed to fellowshipping together and to encouraging others in the faith. And that's verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The first thing that he says in verse 24 is let us consider. So let's consider that word consider for just a moment. It means fix your mind on this. Fix your mind on something. It's like it's the idea of radar locking onto an object. It's the idea of focusing on something in order to obtain it, to get it. We're to strategize concerning or to fix our minds and figure out how to spur one another on toward love and good deeds, specifically. And that word to spur means to deliberately provoke someone. Usually it's used negatively, but here it's used positively. He's saying, find a strategy which will enable us to deliberately provoke each other to these good things, to loving and to doing good deeds for God. Be intentional about this, is what he's saying. And then second, in verse 25, he says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. And clearly, this was a great temptation for those first century Jewish believers who were being pressured by family and friends to come back to the synagogue. In fact, it seems evident some of them in Some of the readers in the early church had grown weary of the suffering and had given up meeting together. 30 also says, but encouraging one another. And there are few needs more fundamental in the Christian faith than encouragement. It's one of the reasons we come together like this week after week. And by the way, it's also one of the reasons why you and I need to be part of a class or a small group, some sort of a smaller gathering of believers so we can really get to know each other and pray for each other and spur one another on to love and good deeds. Let's go back to the text. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another toward love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What's the day that he's talking about here? Well, I believe he's talking about the day of Christ's return. As the battle rages around them, one fact that will help them keep the courage is their hope in the day of Christ coming back for them. It's called the blessed hope of the Christian, that Jesus is coming back, he's going to take us home with him. So we've considered the exhortations to endure. But now the writer shifts rather abruptly 
into this warning, this very strong warning. I've called it warning number four, which is the danger of willful sin. The danger of willful sin. And the word for at the beginning of verse 26 indicates that there's this strong connection between the three exhortations we just read and this warning that he's launching into now. Of the five warnings given in the book of Hebrews, we're number four now, this is the one that's by far the most sobering of all. And the first question that we need to answer is, who is this written to anyway? Who's he writing this warning to? So let's consider that as we read verses 26 and 27. He says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Notice the word we right at the beginning. For if we go on sinning, There's plenty of respected scholars who say this is a warning to unbelievers, people who sort of got close to choosing Christ and then rejected him. But since the author of this letter identifies himself as part of this group, he uses the word we here, he's later going to use the word us in the same warning passage. Since he's part of it, we don't believe that this is to unbelievers, but it's to Christians. So this is written to believers. It seems childish to sort of have to stop once again at this point and reiterate this fact. Every warning we come to, I do the same thing, okay? But it's critical for us if we're going to understand exactly what this warning is about. The next question we we must answer is, what exactly is he warning about? What's the nature of the sin that's so dangerous? Well, in a nutshell, the warning is about sinning deliberately. Deliberate sin. So this is not an accidental or unintentional kind of sin. It's something that is voluntary and willful. There's a deliberate, premeditated sense to this. You know what's wrong, but you go ahead and do it anyway. Further, the word sinning is a a present tense verb, which means this is not a one-time act, but this is a continual, habitual pattern. You say, can you give me some examples? Absolutely. I'm glad you asked. So... Let's say, for example, that somebody has hurt you deeply. They've, they've sinned against you. They've offended you. And uh, you're sort of cherishing that sin, and you're not fully forgiving them. I know we all have struggles sometimes to forgive people, but this is more like when you're content to sort of nourish the sin and not forgive. Nourish that grudge. You know what I'm talking about. So that's the kind of thing that falls into this category of willful sin. Or perhaps your deal is addiction, whether alcohol or drugs or any other addiction. Again, not a one-time slip, but a habitual pattern of it. Or maybe it's the sin of lust, of sexual immorality. And you know that it's wrong. In fact, you've been convicted about making a change and dealing with it, but you keep going back there anyway. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there's actually an example of a man who was living in that kind of habitual sexual sin. And Paul wrote to the church there in Corinth these words. This is 1 Corinthians 5.5. He said, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So clearly he's writing about a Christian, and he's saying you are to deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. 
The context, again, is a man who is living in ongoing immorality, willful sin. And Paul is talking about the kind of chastisement that God has in mind and the steps, the way that the church needs to be involved in that. And of course, Paul was an apostle, and he could say some things that I would not feel comfortably, comfortable suggesting. But don't miss the point. Here's the point. 1 Corinthians 5 is an example of willful sin of a sexual nature. Or willful sin could include any other sin, something that God's Spirit has been speaking to your heart about and prompting you to give up, whether it's anger or pride or materialism or selfishness or anything like that. And rather than dealing with it decisively, you fail to repent and you keep going right back to it. That's what's meant by sinning deliberately. In the context of Hebrews, here's what I think specifically is going on. For these former Jews to forsake the assembling of themselves together in the church, in, in the Christian church, and go back to the ritualism of Judaism would be for them a willful sin. Since the Old Testament law had been terminated and replaced by this once and for all sacrifice of our great high priest, it meant to do that would be returning to a system where the sacrifices made no sense at all. They had no value. They were worthless. Furthermore, the text goes on to clarify now the characteristics of willful sin. So to see this, let's look back at the text closely at verses 28 and 29. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Three characteristics of willful sin are mentioned here in verse 29. The first one is spurning the Son of God. You might just write down the word spurning. Spurning the Son of God. See that in verse 29? How much worse punishment will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God? Some translations say trample underfoot the Son of God. And the Greek word here means to show disdain for someone or something. It refers to showing contempt toward something or someone. In sports, there's what's called a flagrant foul. You might be able to think back over the last year in basketball and in football and think of some flagrant fouls that that stand out. That's the idea here. It's showing such disdain for the Son of God. That's characteristic number one. Number two is profaning the blood of the covenant. Profaning. So spurning the Son of God is showing disdain for the person of Christ, while profaning the blood of the covenant is showing disdain for the work of Christ. And that's what a person does when they return to animal sacrifices after learning that Jesus has shed his blood as our perfect and final sacrifice. That's tantamount to a flagrant foul against God. You don't want to go there, he says. Characteristic number three is outraging the spirit of grace. So willful sin is spurning, it's profaning, it's outraging the spirit of grace. And the word outrage in verse 29 means to insult. To put your faith in Christ and then to live in any kind of willful sin is an insult and to show disdain 
for the Spirit of God who brings God's mercy to us, who's the one who convicts us of our sin. You know, the New Testament says that we can quench the Holy Spirit, and it says that, that we can grieve the Holy Spirit, and now we see here that we can also outrage Him. That's exactly what we do when we reject His convicting word upon our hearts and instead choose to sin willfully and deliberately. You might ask, well, where does willful sin lead to? What happens to the person who does this kind of thing that he's talking about here? Well, obviously a person who does that kind of thing has some pretty serious consequences, and that's what comes next, the consequences of willful disobedience. And by the way, Christians living in deliberate sin is very common. It's a very common thing. And I believe that in the evangelical church in America that it is filled with people living in willful sin, willful disobedience. Where does that lead, you say? Well, the text gives us the answer, but first I want to bounce back to verse 26, which sort of introduced this section. Remember what it said there. Verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Notice, first of all, the word fearful. It's used only three times in all of the scriptures, and those three times are here in the closing chapters of Hebrews. This particular word doesn't refer to a phobia about something that might happen, you know, like a phobia of sharks. Let's, let's say that you're one of those people who are afraid of sharks so you won't ever swim in, in the ocean. That's a phobia. That's not this word. Okay, this word refers to the rational fear of a thinking person who's facing the certainty of something bad. That's the word here, used here. It's like being on a plane and you're smelling smoke and all of a sudden the oxygen mass drop down in front of you and over the intercom you hear the voice of the pilot and the pilot says... This is not a drill. This is an emergency. Prepare for a crash landing. That's the fearful expectation. That's the word that he uses here. Then notice the word judgment. What's that? Well, the people receiving this warning, remember, they're believers, so we know he's not threatening them with the loss of salvation. He's not talking about the fires of hell. Okay? Rather, this is a warning about some other kind of judgment. And in context, it's a warning of God's chastisement for his children who choose to live in sin. God disciplines his own children. Do you believe that? I believe that. You believe that? That's what God's word says. And we're going to see that in a few chapters when we come to chapter 12. But I want to preview a couple of verses there. It's where we're headed in a few weeks, but it fits in here as well. It says this. My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. And don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. Notice the word loves there. Discipline is a response of God's love. He loves us so much that he doesn't let us get away with certain things, at least not too long. So what's the consequence of willful sin? My friend, it's inviting God's discipline God's judgment upon your life. And believe me, you don't want to go there. Well, we come to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30 now, and the word for in verse 30 indicates 
that he's giving us the reason for the judgment that follows our willful disobedience. And the reason, he says, stems from the very character of God. Verse 30 and 31. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The quote here is from Deuteronomy chapter 32, which is a warning about turning away from God willfully. It's a reminder that God is righteous, and when his holiness is violated, his character demands that our sin be punished. We know from Scripture that God is long-suffering and he's patient, that God is loving and he's infinitely gracious with us. In fact, God's word says he's not willing that any should perish, but he desires all to come to repentance. But there comes a day when God cannot overlook rebellion any longer. And that's what's in view here. For his own children, he's not going to let us go on forever. It is a terrifying prospect for a believer who has rebelled to fall under God's hand of chastisement. And since we're concluding our worship service this morning by coming to the Lord's table... I want to give you one more example of God's discipline that's mentioned for us in Scripture. This time we're over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This will be on the screen behind me as well. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 30. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some have even died. Please notice the word judgment here in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul's talking about how God disciplines his own children who choose willful sin. He says the Lord's table is a very serious matter. In fact, Paul says here it's a deadly serious thing, okay? And that in Corinth, people were weak and some were sick and some were even dying because they took the Lord's Supper so casually. They didn't receive it with the honor it deserved. And he's saying this is not something to mess around with. Why is it such a big deal, we might ask? Well, because the table of the Lord, the bread that we're going to receive and the cup that we're going to Take. This represents what God sent his son to do for us. It represents his violent, bloody, brutal, sacrificial death on the cross for your sin and for mine. And God is totally serious about it, and he expects us to be as well. All right, back to Hebrews 10 once again. What is the judgment being warned about in Hebrews 10? What is this warning all about? Well, in historical context... Those who identified with Judaism, went back to Judaism, would suffer great judgment. You know, the Romans destroyed the nation within a few years in 70 AD. But it's more than that, and it's broader than that. God is basically warning that he will chastise his children who choose to sin deliberately. We've been looking at this grave warning about willful sin, verses 26 to 31. But now the author of Hebrews gives sort of the counterbalance, a great word of encouragement that he closes out the chapter with. And the encouragement here is to persevere. The encouragement to persevere, verses 32 to 39. 
And the encouragement begins by remembering how God has worked in the past. Remember how God has worked in the past, he says. He's, he's reflecting on those things they had already suffered because of their identification with Christ. He begins the, with the words, recall the former days. And he's taking them back to right after they were saved, and he's reminding them how God worked in, those, in their lives back in those early days of the faith. <clears throat> Here's the point. The Holy Spirit is going to drive home. He said, you did well back then, so you can hang on now and in the future if the persecution doesn't let up. Listen to how he put, puts it in verses 32 to 34. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So he describes the affliction that they went through as believers in Jesus Christ as a result of their faith. They'd chosen to receive Christ as Messiah. They'd been baptized into the, the church in their community. And for that, he says, you have endured a hard struggle with sufferings. That included reproach, which means public ridicule, possibly beatings. It included having their possessions plundered, he says. That means fellow Jews still in the synagogues seized their property just because of their allegiance to Christ. For those who owned businesses or were in sales for a living, they, they suffered financially in other ways as well. Listen, they were suffering greatly because of their faith in the Lord Jesus. And the encouragement now continues as he turns their minds toward the future. First, the encouragement he gives them is look at what, how God took care of you in the past and how you stood strong in the past. Now he says look to the future by looking forward to the rewards. By looking forward to the rewards. Please listen as I read verses. I'm backing up to verse 32, and I'm going to read through verse 36. I'm going to read from the New Living here, so it's on the screen behind me. He says, Think back on those early days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful even though it meant terrible suffering. Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule and were beaten, and sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things. You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail, and when all you owned was taken away from you, you accepted it with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. So do not throw away this confident trust in the Lord. Remember the great reward it brings you. Patient endurance is what you need now, so that you will continue to do God's will. Then you will receive all that he has promised. Verse 36 is a very key verse in our text today. In fact, I based my sermon title on it. He says, for you have need of endurance. That's the ESV. I encourage you to underline those words in verse 36. For you have need of endurance. Trials and persecution may come, he says, but you need to endure in the faith. I know from talking to some of you that you have experienced trials and and persecution because of your faith in Christ. And obviously Christians in, in some countries today are facing much greater persecution even than we do here. But there's no guarantee that we won't face far more 
in the days to come right here in the United States. So let us be prepared in case God calls us to endure as well. All right, verse 37 to 39. Let's close out the section. He says, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere, excuse me, and preserve their souls. Look at that last verse. Is there any question he's writing to Christians? We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He's saying, you don't need Christ. You already have him. What you need is patient endurance to wait upon him, to live in faith till he comes back. In a sense, what he's talking about here is rewards. About the day that you and I, as followers of Jesus, will stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ. The doctrine of eternal rewards is an often forgotten doctrine, but it's such powerful motivation if we understand it. It motivates us to live properly now, and that's why God promises rewards to his children. Maybe like me, you happened to see the, uh, the uh, U.S. Olympic athlete, the 19-year-old gal yesterday standing on the, the medal, uh, or on the... Uh, thing receiving her gold medal. She's 19 years old. She was in a shooting competition. And as I walked through the TV room yesterday, I was working on my sermon that I walked through and, and I heard the national anthem and I stopped and I looked and just sort of that pride that wells up with, within you when, you when you see that kind of thing. And uh, I walked on and I began thinking to myself, as great as that is, God is offering us as his children something far better. You know, some people are motivated by earning Olympic medals. Nothing wrong with that. But God wants his children to be motivated by living for his glory and by the eternal rewards that he has for us. You and I may never win an Olympic medal, but every single one of us can hear the Savior say to us on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Well done. Friends, our faith is tested by waiting. They needed to trust God and live by faith, especially in light of the persecution they were suffering. They needed to keep looking forward to their eternal reward, and so do we. And then how gracious of the Holy Spirit to conclude here in this section with this strong word of encouragement. He says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Amen. Well, let's uh, talk about some application before we wrap it up. Some next steps for us to consider. Number one is this. I want to start with a question for you to just ponder and reflect on. And the question is this. Am I shrinking back or standing strong in my faith? He used that word shrinking, shrinking back in the text a couple of times, okay? You see, we don't just stand still spiritually in the Christian life. We're either shrinking back or we're moving forward. We're either drawing near to God or we're sort of drifting away from God. And that's because of the current of the culture we live in here. Okay? So if you were to evaluate how you're doing in your own faith, your own relationship and faith in God today, what would you say? Would you underline shrinking or standing strong? Where are you at today? 
Next step number two, I will be proactive to endure in my faith by, then please fill in the blank. I will be proactive to endure in my faith by, what's the Holy Spirit saying to you today? Four things that came to my mind, four possibilities are, number one, I will identify clearly with God's people. I suggest you start by becoming a member of the church and you also be baptized publicly about, uh, for your faith in Christ. So membership and Baptism are ways we identify with God's people. Number two is to make a commitment to the Lord that you will be faithful in your attendance. The passage talks about not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. That's one of the ways we can be proactive to endure in the faith. Number three is to find a ministry to serve in because we grow when we serve God. And by the way, there's a list in your bulletin today, an insert in your bulletin of the areas that we need people to step up and serve as we prepare for the uh, re, uh, relaunch of the fourth service in a few weeks. So if you can help us out, we'd love you to do that. Just mark that insert and drop it in the offering bag. At the same time you're helping us by serving, you're also taking a proactive step to grow in your faith. And then fourth, our passage talks about stirring up one another in love. The best way I know to do that is to be part of a small group. And you might remember that every fall we do this, this all-church study together, and our small groups do it along with the sermons that are being preached here. And we're, about, we're preparing to launch that uh, fall sermon series in, in a couple of months. We're looking for uh, some new leaders for our small groups right now, though. So uh, maybe that would be something you would consider doing to serve, to lead a small group, or to be a co-leader of a small group. Mark that on your communication card today, and Pastor Reg will be in touch with you to explain that or to share with you about the training that we have coming up for that. Next step number three. I will repent of willful disobedience. The Holy Spirit is calling us in this passage to deal decisively with our sin, to repent of our sin, and when you sense the Spirit of God convicting you, it's time to make a big move. Don't put it off. Don't say to yourself, I can do that later. Do it today, beloved. Do it today. It only makes things worse and harder to wait. So please do it today. Deal with your disobedience before it becomes any more entrenched in your heart and lifestyle. I've shared with you before how when I was a young man from ages like 16 to 18, how I drifted away, personally drifted away in my own faith. I'm not proud of that at all. It was a period in my life where I was fearing people more than I feared God. I gave in to peer pressure and I lived in willful disobedience. I believe I was saved at that time, but I know that I dishonored the Lord during those years and I lost out on rewards. And I regret that greatly, but how I thank God that he gave me a second chance. How I thank God that he forgave me and offered me the chance to move on. Friend, if you're living in willful sin today and you know it, thank God that he offers you a second chance. Deal decisively with your sin today while you still can. Repent and come back to the one who gave his life for you. And then finally, next step number four, I will persevere in faith by, please fill in the blank again. Remember, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So 
Uh, make sure part of your plan to persevere involves the intake of God's word. Be daily in the word of God. And remember how God has helped you and others in the past to stand strong for him. Many examples of that in scripture. And then remember that he promises you great reward when you, when you do that, when you stand faithful for him. Keep your eyes focused on the reward and on Jesus himself. All right, let's bow in prayer. Please pray with me. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for not only sending Jesus as our Savior, but for loving us enough to discipline us and for not letting us wander too far, too long in disobedience to you. We confess today that we need you. Although we're your children, Lord, we face many temptations and trials and fears and doubts. We thank you for the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Thank you that his perfect once-for-all sacrifice covered our sins completely. And so, Lord, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, our great high priest, the one who provided our salvation, and the one who has promised to complete the work that he began in us. Help us to live our lives in view of the eternal reward you offer us. Help us to persevere. For we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.